Hi, everybody. I'm Traven Rice. I am the arts and culture editor at The Lowdown, and this is The Lowdown Culture Cast. And we're talking with culture changers in downtown New York. And I'm really excited to have somebody here in the studio with me who I actually spoke with in the early days of The Lowdown um, back in 2011. And she has a new show out in a gallery here in the neighborhood. I'm talking today with Bonnie Lucas, a New York City-based artist and educator. She was also a union activist while working as an adjunct professor at City College, CUNY in New York City. Born in Syracuse, New York, she attended Wellesley College, majoring in art history and earned an MFA from Rutgers. Bonnie creates art focused on feminine themes like domesticity, identity, and childhood. And I was reading the way that they describe your art, Bonnie, um, at your latest show. They say, you dismantle feminine objects and reassemble them to new configurations of art, so which we'll talk about. But welcome. It's so nice to see you. So nice to see you, too. After we were saying 13 years. Right. When you visited my studio. I did. Yes. I did. And I loved, I loved the work, and I've always been a fan, and I love seeing that you're having another show in the neighborhood. And I just went and saw that work, and I love that work, too. So for those people who don't know about your work, since we can't show it to them, there will be some photos on the website, but could you describe the work to somebody who might not know about it? Most of my work is small and dense and intricately made with very feminine things that I buy in 99-cent stores and discount houses. I've been collecting things that I purchase for very little money for probably 40 years. I love to dismantle and take apart, cut, cut apart things that I buy. They're usually small and intricately made. And they mostly are purchased, I'd say, 99% of the time by women and girls. Um, I shop. Part of my practice is shopping for the items I'm going to usually sew together to create narrative scenes. Mm -hmm. uh, they're usually incredibly feminine things. They relate to my girlhood in the 50s and 60s. I was born in 1950. Um, I tell a different story from what the objects originally are supposed to say about girls and women. Mm -hmm. That's, that makes me feel powerful as an artist, to tell a different story. And you put these um, objects together in what you say are collages or assemblages. What, what's the difference between a collage and an assemblage? Well, I, I taught art for decades, so I'm into definitions, but a collage implies it's fairly flat. An assemblage means there's usually low relief with a flat back. So technically, I would say most of my work, I do flat collage, but most of my work has relief. It's called low relief. And uh, sometimes things are sewn onto pieces of canvas duck, sometimes onto wire mesh trivets. And um, then sometimes I cast plaster plaques and embed objects into the wet plaster that become permanent. Mm -hmm. And that's mostly what we're seeing in the latest show. The latest show are two series, um, fabric on wire mesh Pizza trivets, actually. They're sold in restaurant supply places. They're, they come in all sizes. And then cast plaster plaques. Mm -hmm. 
And so if, you know, this is my, my experience of the work, is that if you just looked at it for a minute, briefly, and you didn't look very closely, you would see um, these sort of bright, col- you know, colors of pink and some, now some greens and blues, but kind of pink types of doll-like colors. And there's lots of parts of dolls, um, usually in, in most of the pieces, and then a lot of different objects. So you would think, oh, how sweet. Yes. <laughs> right? Oh, it's because it's, there's a doll. It's a doll. Mm-hmm. And you think, so it brings you immediately to think about, you know, being a little girl in childhood. But then when you start to look closer, it's not so sweet. There's a lot more going on. You, you described it very well. Um, my work is a push-pull about opposites. I draw people in initially thinking, oh, about this is a sweet artwork about childhood. No, it isn't. You, might, you look again and you see very strange and disturbing things happen in most of my pieces. Um, I use a lot of dolls and I take them apart. Sometimes my dolls are upside down. Sometimes they're tied by their feet to trees. Uh, sometimes they lack arms. and Sometimes their heads are taken off, and instead of heads, they have flowers coming out of their necks. And it delights me to, to rope people in, thinking my work is pretty and sweet, and then to be, be bedazzled or shocked by how strange it is. Yeah. And so um, what was it about depicting these, you know, starting with the childhood images for a little girl, but then delving much deeper into what was underneath all of those images? What was it about that that, like, got you started and got you off and running? I, I love that you said what's underneath. That's the essence of my work. I've always loved the word subtext. What is the subtext? Um. When I was growing up in the 50s, my mother told me that she chose my name Bonnie because it meant good. And when I was a kid, I was thrilled. I tried very hard to be good, but I knew I wasn't. Mm -hmm. And that propels me forward to tell a different story about sugar and spice and everything nice and the supposed purity and sweetness of girlhood. I want to tell a different story about pain and struggle and misinformation and, and loss and family dynamics, which are not always pretty and good. Mm-mm. And uh, just, I love to explore what is underneath. In fact, I love that you said that. I have to tell you that again, because in many of the pieces, you look through transparent material and you find treasure underneath the transparent material. You find beauty underneath things Mm -hmm. and inside of things. Mm -hmm. And it intrigues me to work like that. Mm -hmm. You have to keep looking closer and closer. It keeps kind of revealing itself. You know, a lot of the um, figures of the the dolls are the little girl-type figures that we see in your work. As you said, sometimes they don't have their head on. And a lot of it can look a little bit violent. I mean... There's a lot going on. So how, was that sort of like a feeling that you had? My, my work isn't intellectually predetermined before I make it. It's been flowing for 50 years. 
And it comes from playing with material. It comes from emotion. And it comes through some what I call big ideas, some general big ideas. But I'm glad you brought up the Headless Girls because we had the first two weeks of the show, we had about 10 tour groups come. And, I, and the tour leaders asked me if I would talk. So I actually talked to about four tours. Mm-hmm. And they asked me about the Headless Girls and what was happening. And in two of the pieces in the show, two big dolls don't have heads and they're spewing scores of tiny, pretty feminine objects. Where their head is, it becomes an orifice and they're discharging beautiful things, things I've collected and loved. And they're discharging hundreds or scores of beautiful things onto the ground. So they're making earth, they're making flowers, they're making nature. You know, you've heard the term earth mother. So the girl, instead of a head, is spewing beauty and creating earth. And all of a sudden, I was in front of a tour group, and I said, this is a metaphor for creativity. Mm. From inside, again underneath, from inside comes out, hopefully, sensual beauty, dynamic imagery, great stories Mm. from underneath. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is about, I grew up at a time when one's exterior as a girl and a woman was considered of the utmost importance, what you looked like, what you wore, what your hair was like, in order to attract boys when you got older. Do you think that that's changed that much? (laughs) No. (laughs) No. (laughs) No, no, no. It's huge for girls and women. And it's, of course, I have to say, there is an element where we all love to look as, as good as we can look. But the emphasis, especially in my family, I had a mother who really, really focused on your outward appearance Mm -hmm. to to an extent that I, you know, it was overwhelming to me and my sister. Mm. You know, we tried to live up to my mother's expectations of how to dress and how your hair should be and your weight. Yeah. And um, anyway. All these expectations that are put on to young girls. Um, You know, I mean, I think we hope that we've come farther as far as uh, these idealistic, you know, kind of stifling definitions of what it means to be pretty and sweet and, you know, the right type of girl. I think now that we've had the the event of of the Barbie movie, um, it feels a little more recognizable in some ways, perhaps, as far as mainstream versus... Are they, I don't know. I'd like to hear what you think okay. about mainstream ideas around feminism and, and the patriarchy and um, if the culture is changing. I think it's changed because women are unembarrassed and unafraid to be feminine. Mm-hmm. Um, in, a, in a different way, you mean in a way that maybe... that they're choosing as opposed to it sort of being imposed upon them? yes. Yes. So I feel the young women I've met in their 20s and 30s have a huge range of choices of how they want to dress, what they want to wear, colors they love, how they want to decorate their apartment, being being tomboyish. Mm-hmm. But uh, the essence of femininity and girlhood seems not to have changed much. Mm-hmm. How so? I think we'll always be people pleasers 
not all of us, but mm-hmm. and these are the good thing and into empathy. Mm-hmm. And into somewhat looking out for other people. Mm-hmm. That's what I've noticed throughout my entire 73 years of my life. When I'm in a crowd and something scary happens, I always <clears throat> look for other women to connect to. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure why. <laughs> we Almost every woman I've met is trying to do the right thing by other people in her life. Mm -hmm. So I don't know where that comes from. Women my age, for the most part, are totally devoted to other, their family members Mm -hmm. and and supporting them in any way they can. Well, another thing that you've um, experienced and been working with because of your career, I would say, is um, the uneven attention that female artists get compared to male artists. That's been a long process of where people are looking as far as, you know, who's making the money professionally, right? Well, the art world is filled with secrets. No one quite knows who's making money and who isn't because people don't really publicly share that. But from the small amount of information I have gleaned, um, men still make so much more money than women artists. And it's a shame. Women are showing just as much, if not more, than men at this point. But we're not making the same kind of money. Mm-hmm. Still. Yes. And I know you were involved with a, um, a very radical, uh, admired group of female artists, which now you're allowed to talk about? Yes. I, for about a year, was a member of the radical group, the Guerrilla Girls, which was formed in the 1980s in downtown Manhattan by a group of incredibly strong feminist artists. I was invited to join about a year or two after they after they decided they would be called the Guerrilla Girls. And w- what we did was poster. This was before the internet. Uh, we designed and made posters that critiqued the sexism of the art world. Mm-hmm. And we, I took part in creating the poster and then using a brush and glue and putting them up all over Soho and Lower Manhattan. And oh, a few years later, the group got tremendous attention. The posters were witty and funny. And see... I remember the issues that were addressed in the 80s. First of all, the name Gorilla Girls. Some people were upset that we used the word girl. Uh-huh. In the, the feminist movement in the late 60s, throughout the 70s, the use of the word girl instead of woman, woman was highly criticized. Right. And the other thing that was going on, women were, have been and probably still are accused of not being, hum- not being funny and humorous. So... The posters were filled with humor, right? And they were—you can find them. There are a lot of books. Actually, the Girl Girls put out some books. Well, and speaking of that, the humor—the the Gorilla Girls all wore gorilla masks. Oh, we were anonymous. I still have my mask way up in my closet because we were afraid if we were identified 
it might hurt our career or certain people would be overly identified with the movement instead the personality rather than the movement right we were anonymous now some most guerrilla girls still are anonymous but mm -hmm. the, the decision was made a few years ago that if a former guerrilla girl wanted to come out we could that's big that's a big change <laughs> I know it was just secret. You couldn't, nobody could talk about it. If they were really a member. Nobody knew who the members right. were, you know. And but they're still doing some big, some big events, right? It, there, decades ago, there was a major split, and a sad confrontational situation developed. It seems so long ago. So all the while, you were just sort of uh, collecting and always looking around for these objects or toys or for young girls and material and fabric and ways that you could make collages or assemblages with them. Yes, I love talking about that because a big part of being an artist for me is shopping. And I have to tell you an anecdote. In the 80s, I was part of a panel discussion back at Rutgers University where I got my MFA talking about being a young artist in New York. And I I use the phrase, I'm fulfilling the woman's prerogative to shop. <laughs> and I thought it was funny and humorous, but guess what? what? This is the 80s. I got flack. <laughs> I was told I shouldn't make a joke about that. Really? Yes. So I'm, I've given you some anecdotes about New York in the 80s, the art world. Yeah. And I felt embarrassed that I'd said mm -hmm. that. But let me tell you. In my small apartment now, I have thousands of small objects that I bought over the last 40, almost 50 years. And I delight in getting a bag of them and sitting on my couch and looking through them for inspiration. Mm -hmm. I have a great memory of sometimes where I bought it and even how much it costs and how if I've used it before. Mm -hmm. And if you were with... Yesterday, I took two friends to see my show and I gave them a private tour and I pointed out the little objects and for example I said this is a camisole top I cut off I bought that about 20 years ago oh, in Midtown wow. <laughs> wow. so I take this very very seriously this is like treasure hunting for me mm -hmm. it was a sequined pink camisole top for two dollars <laughs> and I've used it about five times the corners oh. of it the sequins uh -huh. and I probably still have part of it left in a bag Mm -hmm. But in, I'm dismantling culture. That's what I feel like I'm doing. I'm dismantling the culture that's imposed on girls and women. And I'm telling a new story, my story, a different story. Of course, I'm buying things, but I always say to myself, they're practically free because they're a dollar. And 50 years ago, they were 25 cents in bins. But that is the most you would spend. Right. And I had, it was a game to me. It was like, what, can it, what is our culture selling for the least amount of money that I think is a treasure? The other thing I was telling my friend yesterday, that I'm showing off things in my work that other people laugh at and reject. They call it junk. Mm -hmm. They think it's silly. If it's got a little Disney princess on it, mm -hmm. not to me. To me, it's a treasure, and I'll show it off. I feel like I'm, it's a little museum of things that I've created. Because think about this, girl culture has never gotten any respect. It's considered silly, kind of stupid, cutesy. 
boy culture gets much more respect when you think of sports and fishing mm-hmm. and collecting rocks and uh, what else do boys do? Well, lots of sports. Lot, well, now it's electronics. But girls, girls were put in a corner. I have a huge, I can't tell you, respect for women's crafts and, and traditional women's crafts and knitting and crocheting. And, and when I came to New York, the word craft was considered a no-no in the 1980s, our world. They rejected craft. You couldn't use the word craft when you talked about your work. Why was that? Because in the 80s, they still had a, they separated craft from real art. They had a whole... They had a whole movement called fabric art, separate from the real art, mm-hmm. because the real art is mostly about the intellect. Mm-hmm. Uh, the craft craft is about sensuality and tradition and loving materials and shopping for your yarn and matching colors. They sucked it out of the art world. You're, you're getting me going. They sucked it away. I'm glad they didn't suck it out of you. No. <laughs> <laughs> you, no, they, you've kept it going. You actually kept it going. Not to dwell <laughs> on this feeling, but I do feel that your artwork has captured this feeling of that really uncomfortable time when you are a girl and you're going, you're supposed to be becoming a woman. Um, and how hard and scary and and awful that can actually be. Yes. It's hard for me to talk about personal anecdotes, but the whole journey from the good girl Bonnie to the adult young woman in her 20s was really fraught. I mean, adolescence for me was really fraught. I think for most women it can be a really hard time. And there's so many bodily things happening that aren't sweet and pretty. And I didn't have an adult that ever helped me with any of that. My mother couldn't talk about that. My, I have a sister who's 10 months older who really was, took care of me and was good to me, but she was only less than it. She couldn't talk about it either because mm-hmm. no one was talking to her about it. Mm-hmm. So we, we journeyed alone, which is kind of sad. Mm-hmm. And I went to a girls' summer camp. And uh, I, I had to go to the infirmary when I was 11, when I got my period. Mm-hmm. I was alone. Mm-hmm. And, in, and this was in the 50s. No, it was just 1960 or 61. And, and no one was helpful to me. Right. And I, so, so it happened. So my physical changes I had to deal with 100% by my, by t- by my 10-year-old self. Right, which can feel really scary. It was, it was so scary. Yeah, I mean, it's like a weird thing. Of course, if we just talked about it or we knew what to expect or we, it didn't feel like some shameful thing, it would make it a lot easier. It's hard enough physically to get through it, but you know, by not talking about it or not even knowing no. how to frame it, it makes it way worse. And these were nurses and infirmary. They couldn't even talk about it. They just handed me pad. Mm-hmm. And I hear stories about the, the next few generations. Some of the moms are fantastic about it. And I'm thinking, wow, what it would have felt like if I had a mother that would calmly talk about it with me and help me. Mm-hmm. And I didn't, but mm-hmm. we muddled through, my sister and I. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, you you kind of toughen up. Yeah. You have to. Yeah. And uh, But you definitely have to keep it underneath the surface. Yes. And so that's yes. absolutely what I think the whole, you know, what you're talking about with your work. In a way, in a way, the headless girls are exploding of things that were underneath the surface. And the good part about my work is the explosion is creative and beautiful. They're creating something beautiful. It's not being kept down and hurting me. It's yeah. coming out. And uh, that's the part of art making I adore. <laughs> you yeah. get to you get to release feeling and thoughts and stories. Yeah, definitely. Yes, and be an inspiration, I would say. Thank so, you. Yeah. Well, thank, thank you. you for coming. I'm so excited. Um, thank you for having me. Um, you can still see the show that uh, closes on March 2nd, I yes. believe. And what's the address of the gallery? 168 Suffolk Street. Yes. I highly recommend it. And I look forward to all the up-and-coming shows, and we'll, we'll be following you the Chicago show, and on and on. Thank you so much.